Amen. Go to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Good morning. How many of you are sitting here like, you know what? Today, today I am hoping for one of those hellfire and brimstone messages because quite honestly, I have enough encouragement in my life. And so I need somebody just to straight up discourage me today. How many of you are like, just discourage me, Frank? Raise your hand, please. Raise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank, I'm, I'm, I didn't see any hands. Um, <laughs> that's not one of those passages today, thank goodness. God has given us the opportunity this morning to look into his word into one of my favorite kinds of messages where from beginning to end, the whole purpose of the passage is that you and I would be overwhelmed with strong encouragement for the day. So, good news, it's a happy message this week, which we needed after last week. And if you missed last week, it was a total bummer, so don't even listen to it. Just skip it, don't worry about it, we're going to focus on skin. Um, just kidding. Um, I know the guy who did the message. Kind of lame but that's all right. Um, strong encouragement. He actually says this in the passage. The author of Hebrews gives us a very specific point. So let, let me look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Start reading in verse 13 with me, and we're going to read through the rest of the chapter um, and, and just see how he's trying to communicate strong encouragement. Verse 13, for when God had made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. See, now people swear by something greater themselves, and, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. And because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he's become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right. First thing we got to deal with, who is Melchizedek? I've been teasing this out for weeks, haven't I? Well, you got to wait till January still. Sorry, we're getting there. It's going to happen after Christmas and all that good stuff. We'll hit Melchizedek chapter 7. We'll just talk about that guy for an entire day. His ears will be burning up in heaven. So the, 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 the idea of this morning, though, is that you and I would walk out of here not the same as we walked in. That's always supposed to be the purpose for, for our time with the word. Even if it's first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee and a, and a, and a donut. Or if it's coming into a Bible study with, with men and women. If it's coming into church service on Sunday morning. None of us are ever supposed to interact with the word of God and leave the same. But today, in particular, every single one of us should walk out of here with a, a better understanding of thanksgiving of what it is that God has done for us. And, and this is it. We are commanded, we are encouraged, we are beseeched to seize hope with both hands. God doesn't want us living a life where we are hanging on by our fingernails. Not one hand. He wants us to seize hope with both hands. And he tells us why we can do that. The very first reason is this. We have a God who keeps his word. It starts by saying, for when God made a promise to Abraham, 
Now, that, that's a whole can of worms right there. And, and some of you are like, Frank, you talk about this Abraham guy all the time through Hebrews because it keeps getting mentioned. And some of you are like, I don't even know who Abraham is. So let me, let me introduce him this way. Father Abraham had many sons. Right, right arm, left. That's the Christian hokey pokey is what that is. Um, <laughs> I have no idea why we sang that song ever. It really had absolutely no purpose. Yes, sir. I, I don't even know what it was. But anyway, um, <laughs> So, so God made a promise to Abraham, which you have to understand is the world had just been destroyed by the flood. you got generation upon generation after the flood, and God decides to choose a single person through whom which he will move, he will work, and he will bless the entirety of the world. And ultimately, we see that blessing in Jesus Christ through the lineage of Abraham. So he calls this man Abraham out of Ur. He calls this, this man who, 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 who is about 75 years old, and God says, Abraham... I'm going to make of you a great nation. So, so the implication is you're going to have lots of children so that way your numbers just continue to grow and progress. The problem was Abraham, 75 years old, and he didn't have a single child yet. I, just, just saying. If you're 75 and you're like, I think there's a chance. Counseling is available. <laughs> um, but God makes this promise to Abraham, and Abraham's got the same concerns that you and I would have at 75 with God saying, you're going to have a bunch of kids. He's like, I'm 75. I don't have any. Prove it. God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Why don't you leave your home and go to the land that I'm going to, to show you? And so then you fast forward a few years, probably four or five years, and once again, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make your children, your offspring, like the dust of the earth. So if you can count the particles of dust on the earth, that's when you'll be able to count your offspring. At this point, Abraham is in his late 70s, still no kids. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't like he was married to a 30-year-old woman. She was delightful and wonderful, but uh, she, she was in her late 60s at the time, and I'm just going to be really careful because I can see where I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> it was like right there, like, don't do it, don't do it. Okay. <laughs> Late 70s for Abraham, late 60s for Sarah, still no kids. But still, God promises, you're going to have as many offspring as the dust of the earth. You get to Genesis 15, and God begins to communicate to Abraham yet again and says, Abraham, your reward is going to be very great. Your children are going to populate the world. And Abraham says, but um, yeah, uh, I got nothing, God. You keep saying that. I got nothing. And God says, Abraham, come on outside with me for a second. That's what I want you to do. You look up there. See those stars? That's how many offspring you're going to have. If you can count the stars, you'll be able to count your offspring. It says that Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. And God could have ended it right there. But God, in his grace and in his wonder, I mean, he had already promised Abraham. He didn't need to do anything else. But what he chooses to do is honor a, a, a Near Eastern tradition that was common at the time that God and Abraham were having this conversation. And God says, not only am I have promised to you, but I'm going to picture this promise for you so that it is a more sure, a more firm promise that you will be able to remember how, how much I've promised. And so what he does is the ancient Near Eastern tradition of cutting a contract, cutting a covenant, with Abraham. He says, Abraham, go get these 
animals. Bring these animals as sacrifices here. What I want you to do is I want you to cut them in half. I want you to put one half here, one half here. And this is what they would do. They would cut a contract. It would be like two military leaders from different nations. And one nation would say, listen, we're going to go in with our reconnaissance as long as you're coming in with the heavy artillery after us. You promise? I promise. Okay, let's make this promise. And so they would cut the animals. They would walk through the middle, through the blood trail of the animals. And what that would do is that would picture, that would envision the, the, the promise they had made to each other, the covenant they had made to each other. And it is saying this, if I don't show up with my reconnaissance and you start artillery and it, there's no reconnaissance there, then may the same thing happen to me that has happened to these animals. And if you don't fulfill your end of the deal, you don't send in the artillery and my recon guys are stuck in there, then may the same thing happen to you that has happened to these animals. And that's how they would cut a contract. They would cut the covenant, and God says, I'm going to make sure you remember this, Abraham. I'm going, to, I'm going to put this in your mind, and so I want you to get these animals, and I want you to divide them. I want you to split them up so the blood trail is there. And, and in your mind, you're reading the story in, in Genesis, I think it's 15, yep, Genesis 15, and, and you're ready, you're like, here it comes, I'm ready. And Abraham's going to walk through, and it's going to be amazing, and he's going to be like, oh, Lord, I promise, and he's going to walk through. And just before it happens, it says Abraham's asleep. And as he sleeps, what he sees is this fiery furnace thing <laughs> walk through the middle of those two parts of the animals, cutting the contract. And Abraham never walked through. What God was saying is, Abraham, this covenant, this promise has nothing to do with you. It's on me. It's all fine and good, but you fast forward a few more years, you get to Genesis chapter 18, and, and, and the angel of the Lord shows up at the tent of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, who are now 89 and 99 years old, respectively. And as they're talking to Abraham and Sarah, this is, and I, I apologize, sometimes I feel like I repeat myself all the time. It's like a good parent. Um, but I do, I'm up here, I'm like, man, but it's the Bible, so I, I don't apologize too much. Um, I love this part of this, the book. We just talked about this in, in our Romans class on Tuesday night this week or the week before. Um, so the angel of the Lord's there. And they're, they're eating dinner and they're talking. And the, this is in Genesis chapter 18, just in case you think I'm making it up because it's too good. I mean, this is like, this is, I couldn't make something up this good. The angel of the Lord asks Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? There in the, in the tent, he said, over there. And the Lord said, okay, so listen. <laughs> I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. And your wife, Sarah, who is 89 years old, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. I love just that imagery, don't you? You get the angel of the Lord talking to Abraham. Where's your wife? She's over there. And she's like behind the curtain like, what are they talking about? And the Lord says, I'm going to come back next year. And at this time, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. Now, like we needed this information in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Bible said it, not me. Sarah had passed. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So from behind the curtain of the tent, she laughed to herself. Ha, 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 ha. Right? I don't know. I don't know. Ha, ha, ha. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have this delight? Next verse is awesome. 
But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Enter Sarah, popping through the tent door. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said. The Lord responded, uh, no, you did laugh. And that's how the story ends. It's awesome. But it gives you a picture of the desperation of that moment, doesn't it? 89, 99 years old. God is sitting there saying, next year. I mean, I promised you 24 years ago you were going to have a son. Still hasn't shown up yet. But next year, next year's the year. Whatever. A year later, Abraham names his son Isaac. 25 years after the promise had been given. At 100 years old, Abraham held his first son in his arms. Because God said, your offspring will be like the stars, like the dust of the ground. That is a promise I have made to you. It's interesting, this. 25 years of drama, 25 years of this story, and then after this baby is born, fast forward about 12 or 13 years, and then the story gets really interesting, like it isn't interesting enough already. Because God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to take this boy, this son, this son Isaac, the one you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there on, the, on one of the mountains that I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to show you where you're going to offer him. And, and, and and as we, as we read this verse, we just talked about this in our community group last time. When, when you read that, and you're like, wait. There's so many questions here. Is God going to come through on what he promised? Can he come through on what he promised? And I'm sure, I'm sure that Abraham had, had some of the same questions. But what you get to see is Abraham's immediate response. He got up early in the morning, got his donkey, and took some of his servants and his son. And they headed out to obey what God had called him to do. How in the world did Abraham do that? Right? I've waited 25 years for this boy. I've had him now for 12 years. This is the one through whom God has promised that I'm going to have descendants, offspring. He's going to make of me a great nation through this child. It's going to be this child. This sacrifice of my child would make the promise of God impossible. Well, I, I, think, I think the way that Abe did this I called him Abe, didn't I? We're, we're tight. <laughs> but I think the way Abraham did this is he had already experienced the impossible being made possible by a God who always keeps his word. And so after I've already experienced something that no one else had possibly experienced, and the only reason that it happened is because God was faithful to his word, Abraham was able to. To obey, And I'm not going to have time to get into all the story of the sacrifice. He goes up the mountain. He goes to sacrifice him. And, and at that moment of impact, the knife is going to have with Isaac's throat. The God cries out, Abraham, Abraham, stop, stop. Now I know you fear me. And he offers a sacrifice. There's a ram caught in the bush. And that sacrifice becomes the substitute for Isaac. There's a lot there too, but not for this morning. Conversation continues immediately after that. <coughs> God says this, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, 
because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of, of their enemies. And that gets us to our passage here in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, verse 13, where when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. In that moment, I mean, think, think about let me do this way. Think about it this way. We, think about how the, we try to convince people that we really mean what we say. It used to be a handshake was enough. Now it's contracts, lawyers, attorneys, uh, uh, all these different things. I'm not, not, now you cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, I swear in my grandmom's grave. You put your hand on the Bible in court, I swear to tell the whole the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Which I still, and I put it in the email yesterday, I still I was thinking about it. Would it be hilarious if somebody was like, do you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? No. I think that would be funny, but that has nothing to do with the message. I just think it would be funny. <clears throat> but we do all these things, like, may lightning strike me dead if I'm lying. <laughs> what we do is we try to make an oath on something as great as we can possibly think of to show how, how sincere we're being. But God, there is no one greater, so he's got to swear by himself. This oath is a tool used by untrustworthy people to communicate that they can be trusted. An oath is kind of like an exclamation point after our promise. God didn't have to use an oath. He didn't do it to seal the deal. The deal was already sealed. But he did it to communicate how serious he was in a language that we understand. He did it for us. Look, look, look with me down verse 17. Uh, we're starting verse 16. People swear by something greater than themselves, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. The heirs of promise. That's you and I, if we are in Jesus Christ. And he wanted to show you how serious it was. It, it was a communication tool to show you how much he really can be trusted. It's, this is a goofy illustration of it, but it's kind of like... Um, that old book uh, by uh, Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. And so so th that's something that I use a lot of times in our, our marriage counseling here, pre-marriage counseling included. And we talk about that. It's like so everybody's got a different way that they show and feel and receive love. It, it can be in the five that he goes with are time, quality time, touch, physical touch, gifts. Like, you know, I'm going to give you a gift, um, um, acts of service, or, or even words, just, just encouraging words. And and in all of those ways, we, we do those things that we don't actually have to do in order to communicate our love, the depth of our love, to our spouse. It's important that I understand how Stephanie feels loved. I can't just communicate the way that I feel loved to Stephanie and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you feel loved? Because she feels in a different way. And God says, I understand. You're not going to get how significant this promise is. You're not going to get how much I mean this, how, how you can trust my word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take something that you use in your culture, and I'm going to employ it myself so that I can communicate to you how trustworthy I am to keep my word. He talks about this. This is interesting, how, how unchangeable his purpose. God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly the heirs of the promise, so he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? The promise of God and the oath that God has made. What, what he's communicating to us is this theological term called the immutability of God, the unchangingness of God. And again, not to go 
completely into it, but just to give you an idea of what the immutability and how important the unchangingness of God is. Malachi 3.6 tells us, I am the Lord your God, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob have not been consumed. What that verse is saying is, I am God, I am faithful from beginning to end, I will fulfill my promise even though you don't deserve it. So we praise God for the immutability of God. James chapter 1, verse 17, talks about how the, every good gift comes from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. That imagery of the shifting shadows is referring to our perspective on the sun. The sun rises, and then it sets, it appears, and then it disappears. It, it comes from one angle, then a different angle, and so the shadows are constantly different. And the picture is our God never changes. There's not a single shadow. He is light, and he is always light. There is no change with him. So, so the immutability of God is necessary for a couple of reasons. Number one, God is perfect. So, 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 so to change, for God to change would mean that he can be more perfect, which he cannot be. He is the ultimate imperfection. Or he would be less perfect, which he cannot because he is perfect. The immu- immu- I knew I was going to mess it up once. <laughs> the immutability of God is necessary because God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. You and I change our minds all the time. Sometimes we change our minds because suddenly we receive new information. Try to wrap your head around this one. God has never discovered anything. Nothing has ever occurred to God. He created everything. He is over it all. He's perfect in wisdom. He can't learn something he didn't already know because he already knows everything. So our God is unchanging. I think Numbers 23 verse 19 sums it up nicely. God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That is a rhetorical question that is used to cause you to answer with a resounding, well, no. If he speaks, he acts. If he promises, he fulfills. So what are some of the promises that God has given to us in his word? He says, man, I, I, I will meet your needs. I will hear your prayers. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will forgive you of your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ. I will strengthen you. I will dwell within you with my Holy Spirit. One day I will bring you into glory, that place where I am keeping your inheritance untouched by anyone or anything else so that you can live forever in the very presence of God. Those promises, those promises are yes and amen because our God always keeps his word. Verse 18, I'm Let me go back to 17. Because God wanted to show you his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promises, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is before us. Both hands. Both hands. Some of your fingernails are bleeding. Some of you are doing the old Looney Tunes thing where it's like it's four fingers, oh, now it's three, now it's two, and somebody's just peeling them one at a time. Seize the hope with both hands. God always keeps his word. Then seize the hope with both hands because we have an anchor that will always hold. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. 
firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he's become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We have an anchor that always holds. That's our hope. And our hope is a person. It's Jesus. It says this person, Jesus Christ, entered into the inner place behind the curtain into the very presence of God. So in order to understand this chunk, you've got to understand just a little bit about the, the tabernacle, about the tabernacle that was, that was uh, uh, constructed by uh, Moses, kind of like the portable temple, uh, and then the temple that was later built by, by Solomon. The, so, so, so you've got this, this, this monstrosity of a, of a thing where the whole thing is kind of separated into three parts. Okay? So you've got the, the, the outer court. And the outer court is the place where you, where you could go. Everybody would be there. And, the, and in the outer court, the priests and the Levites would um, b- bring sacrifices and, and, and sacrifices for sin, sacrifices for guilt. There's just a real busy place. But inside of that, that monstrosity of an outer court, then there was this, this other like, tent, this other building, and that was the holy place. There was only one entrance into the holy place. And the only people who could go into the holy place were the priests. And so the priests would come in, it had some different things in there, it had the, the table of showbread, it had the, uh, the, the, the altar of incense, it had the, uh, the candlesticks that would, would shine the light in the, the holy place. But within the holy place, there was yet another smaller area. It's called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was separated from the holy place completely. And it was separated by this, this amazing veil, this curtain. Um, it's talked about in Exodus 26, Exodus 36. It's described for us. And what you find in that description is that this, this, this curtain, this veil, was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. It was, it was made of, of three different colors. Blue, scarlet, and purple. It was embroidered with the image of cherubim. It it was this beautiful thing to see. And it was built to keep people out of that smaller room called the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the, the golden mercy seat. And the golden mercy seat was seen as the throne of God. Now, now God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once. But the mercy seat was seen as a special place for God to dwell in the middle of his people. Now remember, the people were separated from the presence of God by that glorious curtain. And they were separated for every day except for one during the year. On one day, called the Day of Atonement, the high priest was able to enter into, enter into, there we go, the Holy of Holies. And I'm here to tell you the high priest did not walk through that tent, through that curtain, through that veil in a very confident way. It was terrifying. He had to make sure that he was wearing the appropriate clothing. He had to make sure that he had bathed appropriately according to the law. He had to make sure that he had offered the right sacrifices for his own sins. He had to make sure that he had followed step by step by step by step. And even then, the fancy duds that he would put on to go into the Holy of Holies, the bottom of them were lined with bells. Bells so that those outside 
the Holy of Holies could hear if he had suddenly stopped moving. As God was displeased with him, he put him to death. As he entered into the Holy of Holies, he carried with him a censer that had, that had hot coals and incense on it. And as he walked in, he walked in like this, so that the smoke would, would completely fill the Holy of Holies and cover over the mercy seat, so there was no chance that the high priest would accidentally look upon the glory of God. Because to look upon the glory of God, to come face to face with the presence of God, meant instant death. He would walk in bringing the appropriate sacrifice to make atonement for the people. He would sprinkle the blood on the holy seat. Then he would leave. And he and the people would remain outside of the holy of holies, separated from God's presence by this curtain until next year. We're told in the gospel accounts that when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, that that curtain, that veil, was torn in two from the top to the bottom, announcing for everyone who could see that the way to God was now open through the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went behind that curtain, made atonement for our sins, and he still remains forever interceding for us. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That's our anchor. Tells us next that he's our, verse 24 runner, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a, as a forerunner. What in the world is a forerunner? It's a Toyota. I'm glad you asked. This word forerunner, <laughs> for this week anyway, has become my favorite word in the Bible. It is so packed with meaning, as you understand it in this context. It gives you an image, a picture, an understanding of why we can hold on to hope with both hands. So, so the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, was not a forerunner. Understand that. He only went in once a year, and when he came out, the, the curtain was closed to even him for, for another year. No one could follow him. No one could come into the very presence of God. The high priest wasn't a forerunner. The, the high priest was a representative of the people, not a forerunner. Jesus Christ is the forerunner. Because a forerunner isn't just somebody who, who gets in line ahead of us and turns around like, hey, I get to be first. That, that's, not, that's, that's oversimplifying and it's missing the point. A forerunner is someone who has gone on before us for our benefit. So his work behind the curtain of the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies is, is our confidence that we too can enter into the greatest possible nearness with God. It's the blood of Jesus that covers the mercy seat. The blood of Jesus that brings the forgiveness of sins. It's the presence of Jesus still there at the throne room of God that allows us the undeserved privilege to come into the presence of royalty like, a, like they're our friend. That's what a forerunner is. But wait, there's more. <laughs> the people of the time that Hebrews was written would have heard this term forerunner, they would have instantly been familiar with this Roman military team 
kind of special ops. This advanced team for the Roman military was responsible to head into the place where they were getting ready to fight the battle and make sure that the trail was blazed and, and to make sure that, that all of the troops could walk in in safety. That was the forerunner team. Jesus is our forerunner. He goes first. He does it to make it safe for the rest of us to follow him. And as he goes, every enemy has been removed. The way has been cleared. We can walk in with boldness and confidence and never have to look over our shoulder. Seize the hope with both hands. Because we have an anchor that always holds. This anchor is our forerunner, the one who has gone before for our benefit, the one who has cleared enemies from our path. But wait, there's one more. <laughs> the other way this word was used during this time was a nautical term, which is interesting since we're talking about how our anchor holds fast and secure here, right? A forerunner was a nautical term in the, the harbor of Alexandria. It was difficult to navigate because of all the different sandbars and levels and different things that were there. And, and it was a huge port. And so a number of times these ginormous ships would come in just filled to the hilt with corn or, or some other product. And, and as they came into the, the harbor, it was difficult for them to navigate around all of those, those sandbars. And so, so what became common practice is they would send a forerunner. A little pilot ship would, would head out to the boat and then it would then guide them through the sandbars to bring them safely into harbor. But they did something just a little bit more than that. When that pilot boat got to the big ship, they said, all right, follow me. They would get something else before they left. Give me your anchor. And they would load the anchor of the giant ship still attached to the ship on the little pilot boat. And so as the pilot boat navigated the sandbars and as the, the choppy seas might be coming or a storm might be coming, but because the, the tide hadn't risen high enough for the ship to come into harbor yet, this, this little pilot boat would just kind of do the tugboat thing and just kind of keep on moving. It would get there. It would take this giant anchor that is anchoring that huge ship that's still at the harbor and hasn't been able to come into dock yet, and it would drop it. And in that moment, in that instant, that ship was safe from whatever storm was coming. See, we have a forerunner, and he has dropped anchor in the very presence of God so that you and I can come boldly without reservation or embarrassment into his presence. There is Jesus behind the curtain serving us forever. Do you see him? Do you see him with the crown on his head? Do you see him with the, the angels falling before him, praising him day and night, saying, worthy is the Lamb of God? He pleads for us. He intercedes for us. He mediates for us. Can't we trust him? God's desire is that we experience an ever-increasing, always-expanding, full assurance of hope. He doesn't want you hanging on by your fingernails. He wants you to take both hands and enjoy a joyful confidence in Jesus, who is our hope, who is our anchor. Seize the hope that is the finished, the continuing, and the coming work of Jesus Christ.
God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise, so he guaranteed his promise with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your kindness that in a moment like this, a culture like this, a day like this, where there are just so many questions, so many difficulties, so many doubts even, that in this time we, we can hold on to you and, and know that we have a more sure hope. God, thank you that our anchor has been forever placed in your presence and that he's not going anywhere. Please, Lord, I pray you would encourage the one among us this morning who just needs their hands lifted a little bit. Remind them of what you've already done for them. Remind them of what you're doing for them. Remind them of what you're going to do for them. For the one who might be with us this morning who doesn't know Christ, Lord, I pray that their need, their desire, their longing for hope would terminate on Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you for what he's done. It's in his matchless name I pray. Amen.